Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast, presented by the tech doctor, Ronan Leonard. Hi, welcome to this Irish Tech News Podcast. Today I'm talking with Chris Greeny, Managing Director at InfoSec at Temple Executives. How are you doing, Chris? Hi, Ronan. Good to speak to you. Great, thanks. Now, before we get into the nitty-gritty, tell me a bit about your background, because you've got a wide and varied career, which is very interesting. Well, I have, and I think I think many people in this business have. Um, but I came out of law enforcement 30 years doing that, building up uh, the National Source Cybersecurity Fraud Financial Crime Response for UK law enforcement. I spent some time in the Foreign Office and also uh, internationally working abroad for um, law enforcement. And then I went to Barclays, um, doing a similar role in investigation and forensics, uh, cyber response and things like that, um, with some other good people out there who are still there, some great people there. And then I came to Templar. So I've had a sort of real sort of knock around the houses over 35 years in this business. Not all InfoSec, of course. InfoSec sort of come towards a sort of the last sort of third of my career. But, but what I've really picked up is how much we're spending on technology and not necessarily we're spending on people. And the more I look at the whole space of big tech space, very small human space, and we're not investing in the humans. And that's why I really sort of focus on this for my public sector, both, both commercial background. Because I feel that the main flaw in in, tech, in, in the world right now is humans. Well, I know, yes. Yeah, so I, I just sort of helped build the Insider Threat Program at Barclays, and one thing the bank really saw was that we've got to look at how do we protect our own people against themselves in a, in a positive way. Uh, and if you look at the recent Information Commissioner's Office uh, statistics from last week uh, over in the UK, you know, she said, that, you know. There's more breaches that come from accidental errors than they do from cyber attacks. Yeah. But the propensity of the money is still spent on cyber attacks. Yeah, for me, defenses. Yeah, for me, I'm looking at you know, stuff like uh, phishing attacks, how you, where you get an email. And you, you presume in general, because you, you don't check the header, see where it's from. You presume yeah. it says your boss's name yeah. and it's there. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting phishing, isn't it? Because it's still, and this is from Stats In. So I did some, I did a Sky News piece in January after Travelex and. We don't actually still know what the sort of how the intrusion took place, but I'm I'm guessing it was phishing or something like that. I'm guessing I don't know for a fact, but phishing is still the biggest attack vector yeah. uh, into systems because it it will get through many gateways regardless. You know, you can have all the defences on your firewall; it will still get through, and you're left with the humans who've got to make that critical decision: do I click or do, or don't I click? And humans, we are unreliable creatures. And so once you leave it for a human to make a decision based on something that's technical, the chances are half are going to click. Yeah, it's like and saying, then, you, then you're locked out. It's like a sign saying wet paint, and you, and you, you go <laughs> stick your hand in it. That always happens. It's a, it's a great example. I always, I always say we can't help ourselves but click because we're, cur- we're curious creatures. Yeah. And whether it's because we're trying to stop ourselves getting eaten going back a thousand years, even when we know something doesn't look right, we still click it. We just can't help ourselves. And so you're right, and we don't look at the headers. Yeah. Um, uh, we just we just believe what we see, and I think many people press the click, and then something happens, and they go, "I know I shouldn't have done that." Yeah. There's just something in human human behavioural psychology that isn't isn't quite working, or yeah. working in our favour at least. Yeah, I saw once a cartoon in, in Dilbert, and had a, one of the guys said he was said, "I've got a way of making series of money," and he set up a thing where fishing tech, and he sent it to his boss, and his boss looks at it and goes. Hmm, this must be true. It says it's from a bank. And he clicks on it. <laughs> That's Dilbert. I love that. I love yeah. It's a bit on the far side. Um, so, yeah, so I think going back to what you said, you know, I think the human element 
is always a risk. And if companies aren't spending the money on protecting, training, and informing the humans, you, you're just creating a bigger risk vector, I think. And I think there's still, you know, let's, let's put up a proxy, let's put up a firewall, let's put up a perimeter, and then sort of clap your hands and walk away. Well, you know, invest in your people, you know, because your people are going to be your last defense, you know. Yeah, and the worst thing is, if you're working from home now and you're using a BOI device, how do you make sure that device can be compromised? Yeah, and I, and I think... So depending on what sector you're in, I know banking's pretty good about, you know, you only use, you know, the firm's devices, yeah. you only use the firm's VPN, you're forced onto the VPN, you know, within sort of 15 seconds of going onto your home router so the, the surface attack area is limited in terms of time. That's the industry excellent. On the other side, COVID-19's happened, anyone who's got a laptop, use your own laptop, go on your home Wi-Fi, try and network in if you can, depending on what you're using. And so that sort of what I call the the last 100 yards or the last five metres is the risk. And I think there'll be lots and lots of organisations that have, people have come out of the company network from their own firewalls internally, and now they're working from home. And it's a bit of a free-for-all, I feel. Because yeah, if you're working from, from an office, and your office, you're, you're basically using a desktop, and suddenly you've got to yeah. go home, and, and you've only got a family computer which you don't want to use, and you're forced to buy a laptop. Right now, where do you go and get one that you know is going to fill and pound down and will work and consider properly? And it's not been, I mean, a lot, a lot of companies using laptops within the company, within the company office, but they're going through the company's perimeter. They're going through the company's wireless router yeah. or fixed, or fixed um, uh, Ethernet, and they're going through the company's perimeter, whereas when you're at home, you're not going through the company perimeter unless you're forced through a VPN. And as you say, you know, if you're just buying a stock computer from a retailer, who knows what the build is or what the controls are. And the worst thing is, when you're buying from, like, if you're buying from a shop and you're buying a, a normal Windows, Windows laptop, for example, or a PC, uh, they, don't, they don't have the, uh, the, the office for the personal version of, uh, of Windows. So because of that, you have to pay extra again for your encryption. Yeah. Yeah, it's not, it's not running enterprise. No. It's running domestic. Yeah. Um, which is, listen, which is fine if the kids' homework. Yeah. Great. But if you now, and of course, it also depends on what your business is. So but if you're running a business where there are some commercial documents, where you've got client data, you're now just pushing this through your home Wi-Fi. I start to sort of worry a bit. Yeah. Um, and then people, rightly so, are going, "Well, I've got to, I've got to work, so I've got to take the risk." And I, and I understand that as well. But I think if they can just reduce their risk by taking some what I call baby steps, that can really reduce that surface attack area. Yeah, because two years ago when GPR came in, I was I'm using at the moment the coming laptop was like MacBook Pro, and when I was looking yeah. at that, I was looking at encryption and it's built into the machine. You just got to turn it on. I'm thinking if I had Windows, I have to pay extra for that. Yeah, I mean, MacBooks are pretty good still on their um, on how they secure the system. Uh, but they're less common, aren't they? Uh, yeah. And if you're running a Mac, and uh, so I'm guilty of running a Mac as well, but, but you then you have to pay for 365 Office to load on top of that as well. So whereas with a stock, you know, stock laptop, you often get basic Microsoft Office, you know, for free for the first 12 months or something. Yeah, well that, I, I don't mind paying for that because uh, I'm... And the long term is I'm getting this, a secure machine because it's not now mind you if the Mac was more popular when used a lot more worldwide, be a different yeah. story. But it's not, thank God. No, it's not. And I think also, you know, you and I, we don't mind paying for security because we understand it. The majority yeah. of people don't understand it. And they go, Well, why should I pay for it? Why should I pay for it? I've got my laptop, that'll do. And that, and that is a very sort of normal behaviour for most people. Because people have got certainly in some parts of the world and the UK maybe Ireland, people have got used to stuff for free. Yeah, uh, It's a bit like we've got used to free banking. 
you know, we, we've got used to putting our card on the wall and not paying a fee for using that card or fee. And most people don't pay for banking at points of delivery. Yeah. Whereas you go to Australia, you pay for every check, for every, but you pay for that service. And I think we've got used to we've got used to free papers, we're used to free this, free that. And when we have to pay for it, we sort of go, well, why are we paying for it? And so that security conversation has to be much richer than just what you need to. You've got to really sort of help people understand their own personal risk. And I still don't think people see data at a personal level, see data as being a risk. And that's why everyone's so free with it. Yeah, which is kind of scary because I know uh, my father, well, he, he got a new laptop last year. And we finally set up a, his email on Outlook. Mm. And sadly, we couldn't set up because his, uh, his internet provider didn't have, have the update security protocols to let him do that. Search weren't up to date. So... Outlook wouldn't allow them to uh, set it up. Yeah, and I think I think that's where legislation and regulation comes in. And I've I've said for many years that we do have to have a form of regulation around ISPs, social media providers, because they're they're in an unregulated space, yeah. but they're handling the most sensitive data of our personal lives. Um, if it was banking, and banking is heavily regulated, I always yeah. use banking as an example of how hard regulation is, um, and it's not just in the UK but globally. But then you come to the people who are actually who own the tunnels and the pipes and the infrastructure and the architecture. They're wholly unregulated. Yeah. And it's a free-for-all. Yeah, I remember. And, time, and it shouldn't be. At the time, I was asking the tech support. I said, okay, so if I want to use this, um, oh, we don't support that. Oh, well, I said, what, I, what email software do you do support? None at the moment. But you can use our online webmail. And that portal's 15 years old. It hasn't changed in 15 years. Yeah. So I ended up putting my dad on, on Thunderbird. Which you're still getting used to. On oh, Mozilla. Yeah. I like, I like, well, I, like, I use Thunderbird. I like Mozilla. Yeah. Um, I think it's a pretty good system. Um, but Outlook's much more for business people, isn't it, and enterprise. Yeah. Um, it's still common. But but you, you, the ISP should make it available to everyone, shouldn't it? That's the key thing. And what else? And then you go, what else haven't they updated? Yeah. And what, uh, it scared me because they're one of Ireland's largest uh, providers. Oh, I'm not going to name, name any names here, but they're, they're basically a household name. Yeah. And it's kind of annoying because when, when you see that they're not actually doing this and they don't really care. And then they decided in the wisdom early in the year, they were going to charge you a monthly, uh, a monthly fee for using, the, using their email services. Why? But then, the, then they postponed that for a while because of COVID-19. But I, I just thought that was a bit, a bit too much. But to access their email itself uh, on your computer, you have to be using their own actually uh, broadband connection. So you're already using so why would they charge you an extra extra fee for it? That shouldn't be the case. I think that's where also standards come in, into place, you know, if we're all working to the same set of standards, um, which can only be introduced at sort of state level. Yeah. So only the government's can choose standards that people have to follow. It's a form of soft regulation which has a bite. Yeah. I think standards are really important to setting the fabric of the journey. So in the UK, when I was advising government, you know, some years back, one of the things fair play to the government then we got to the point where governments are crown crown supply contracts you could only do business with government if you were cyber essentials now cyber essentials is a pretty low bar yeah Yeah. let's let's be honest about it but it is a standard and by government mandating that you can only do business with government if you are cyber essentials accredited started to lift the bar for lots of suppliers to try and lift their game a little bit very much baby steps but I've always said, you know, governments, I think, have a role to protect all of us. And part of protecting all of us is introducing standards to do business yeah. that protect all of us. And, and governments are reluctant to do so because 
some will say regulation sort of inhibits business and all that kind of stuff but ultimately you've got to balance you know the benefit of business growth with protecting the citizen um so standards i think are really important going forward and i know in the uk i don't know where ireland is on this one i haven't looked closely enough but i know just before covid19 the culture sector was talking about some soft regulation for isps yeah um as is happening in australia now and scott morrison's really talking about this um but i think that's going to come and i think if isps are clever they will go with that and they'll help shape it Uh, otherwise it'll be done to them and that won't help anyone yeah i remember four years ago there was a law turning brought into Ireland that regulated basically free speech online and how you could use data. And uh, one person who was bringing this in, she was claiming that uh, if you if you get sent more than two tweets, it's harassment. The problem is, she didn't, th- didn't think of that because that when you're sending somebody two tweets, it's because you can't fit enough characters in one tweet. <laughs> so I, I wrote an article about this and then uh, just saying how, how stupid the, the this is because there's someone that that can that you can't really regulate against, and obviously there's certain things that I agree. If somebody openly threatens you online, that's fine. Yeah. But if you're openly telling somebody and you're complaining to them and it's going over two tweets and they can say, "Oh, that's harassment." There's got to be a limit. And same with data protection. There's got to be rules that you have to abide by and make sure that they're frivolous. They aren't frivolous. So they're yeah, stringent. And you have to. So when you get to, you know, how do you? It's kind of off a subject, but it's interesting anyway. How do you get? How do you regulate different people's values? Yeah. How do you regulate different people's speech? I think there are some core ones. So, you know, racism you can regulate. That's clear what that is. Everyone yeah. knows what it is. Even if you don't agree with it, everyone knows it's wrong. So you, you can actually monitor, I think, much better things like that. The stuff near the edges, that's harder. Uh, but I think you've got to start in the centre. And, and, and if you're going to get to that point where, you know, Twitter and Facebook, if, if they wanted to, they could take out a... a a huge amount of what I would call is real sort of racist, you know, uh, you know, behaviour that shouldn't take place anywhere, especially online. They could take that out, and they choose not to. Yeah. They choose not to. This is not they can't. It's they choose not to, and I that troubles me. If yeah. I'm honest, so you know, there should not be core racism on Twitter. Yeah, like if I tweeted with Donald Trump with tweets online, I'd be banned right now. For example. Yeah, well, I, can't, I can never speak for other people, but I just think there's ways of doing it, which is which doesn't doesn't affect free speech yeah um, I think most sensible people know what racism looks and sounds like and they can make that decision quite easily yeah but as, I, as can an algorithm on Twitter or Facebook yeah but I, I guess it's it's harder when you see somebody that you know is openly like this because of who they are they get away with it but yeah. someone else does it that, that's it sorry you're banned or barred I don't, I don't quite get that I understand how they they get away with that <laughs> an algorithm could do it quite neatly yeah anyway but, but going back to you know the so the issues around sort of working from home, COVID nineteen. One of the things I think is interesting over in Ireland is that um, you know, and you know, with a name like Greenie, clearly I am well connected to Ireland, as you can tell. Yeah. Um, for my grandfather and father and stuff like that, and having come back and forth for many years, although living in London now, what, what I find interesting is that there's a national cybersecurity strategy which was launched. I think uh, it's 2019 to 2024. The strategy runs. And I think it was a good attempt by the state to try to get some thoughts down on paper and the form of strategy. But I, I worry now with COVID-19 how the execution of that strategy is going to take place. And uh, I always say, you know, you don't want a crisis on a crisis. And I think currently COVID-19 is both affecting you know, economic reality for many people. Yeah. But the risk of cyber security and cyber risk has not gone away. And I keep saying to our own clients, look, COVID-19 is this, but your risk has not changed because of that. It's probably got worse. 
So don't start slimming back your spend because you don't want a crisis on yeah, crisis. I think you're because you're so busy focusing on COVID nineteen. You're not really looking at the real thing. The gold mine is the data, and they're not looking at that. They're just seeing how do we get our side work from home, and yeah. then later on we'll worry about the cybersecurity end of it. But by that point, it's too late. I agree. And if you look at you know, EasyJet, over you know, EasyJet's just sort of flagged up publicly one of the, a big data, another big data breach. Probably didn't happen. I'm not sure when it happened, but either way, they're now imagining a crisis on a crisis. They've got their own crisis, as lots of business have in terms of you know economic stability, keeping the business functioning. Yeah. And now they're managing a second front. And I think for many big organizations now, they can manage they can manage with what they've got with COVID-19. It's deeply stressful. It affects employees. It affects their P&L. However, another thing on top could be the tip of the iceberg for them, I think. Um, and so you don't want to manage a crisis on a crisis currently. And that means you've got to keep your eye on the information security piece in your business as well, more so than perhaps you did before. You keep it in the price. I'm thinking if, if you're a smaller company or a startup, it's easier to do this because you've got less employees and you need to manage your data. But when you're a big company with offices all, all over the, the world, how do you cope with this? Uh, we should have been doing it before, is what I say. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> um, but many, many have probably have gone, actually, how are we How are we on this bit? And everyone sort of looked at the floor a bit and shuffled about and going, well, it's not quite as good as we thought it was. Um, but it's better to act when you know than rather not act. I think smaller businesses... Um, and this is where I have a slightly different approach is that you know, they have limited budgets, limited R&D budgets, li- limited IT budgets. But I think even if they take some small steps just to help them, their staff be safer. Yeah. To say, look, if you're working from home, here's 10 things you need to do. 10 simple things. If you can't do that, the IT person will do it or someone who knows in the business how to do it and just re- reduce your attack area. Um, so, you know, we're not saying to, I wouldn't never say to an SME now, small one, spend loads of money. But what I would say is take some time to advise your staff properly and effectively. Yeah, I think as well, the ones who are going to survive this a bit longer because their budget is smaller. They know they have to do this properly and they can't afford to get it wrong. Whereas somebody with a big budget yeah, is not bothered as such. Well, yeah, but even with a big budget, if you're trying to scale down 20% out of your business, whether it's a big budget or a small budget, it's 20%. Yeah. Uh, your comfort layer might be bigger. I get that. You might have some more more sort of resources to stretch away, but your risk your risk is probably greater as well. Yeah. Um, so it's scalable, isn't it? I think that's the key thing is what we're saying. Rather. Yeah, and I think basically a bigger business, they, they, their view is, oh, if someone's going to sue us, they might think we can afford that. Small business yeah. can't. I think, I think that's true. I think people look for the bigger companies to have litigation against because usually they have some form of insurance that may pay it yeah. or they've got enough funds put away. You know, it's a bit like banking fines and other regulatory fines that companies actually put money to one side of this very, this very eventuality. You're like thinking of like GDPR. When someone says who's going to, what the fines are going to be, if you're a smaller company, you can triple you. If you're somebody big like Facebook or someone or Google or one of the big companies, that's their pocket change. Yeah, I think it is, but it's also for them reputation. So yeah. I, I tend to think that smaller companies can survive reputation more, but they can't pay the fines. Yeah. Whereas big companies, yeah, they can they can throw money at things all day, but a bad name for a big company, it, it can be terminal for some. You know, yeah, some, some companies have changed their name, um, you know, because of things that happened. You might remember, I think it was the Northern Ireland bank bank job yeah. or another bank job where was it Securitas or something like that. But they changed the name of the company because it had such a bad name after this big bank raid. Yeah, they changed it to 
I can't remember what it's changed to, but uh, they changed the name of the company to, to get rid of that sort of bad reputation. So big companies, reputation is very important for them, and that affects price on the bottom line on shares and shareholder value in a way that fines probably don't. Yeah. So they have different levers, but it's just as bad for them in some respects. Now, I guess right now with GDPR now becoming uh, very, very stronger and, and we're going to be seeing big fines brought soon here from Ireland, that's going to change. And up until now, they've been kind of lax, but that will change. And once you've got yeah. one fine, I think, they'll change the rack and I won't do it again. Yeah, exactly. But you want to be, you don't want to be that person. You want to be the one who saw the fines coming and the regulatory impact coming and, and prepared for it beforehand. And yeah. I'll give you a good example where I don't see this happening in some sectors is ransomware. Yeah. So, you know, lots of organizations, and I've, and I've blogged about this before, and I've got some pretty strong views about it, about paying criminals for ransomware, right? I think it's just creating a bigger problem. Um, and I think TravelX paid as well. TravelX is now for sale by uh, Finnevar, which is the uh, owner. But I think once you get down the line of having to negotiate with criminals to get um, not your data back, to get access to the data that they've seen already, I think you're at the wrong end of the, uh, the moral spectrum, yeah. I would argue. Now, people... People will say, well, Chris, you know, it's no different to human hostages. Uh, and I say, well, it is a different to human hostages because this isn't humans we're talking about. This is data. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you could have had some some preparatory steps to support the recovery of that data should you have chosen to. And when global companies have to pay criminals for ransomware, the criminals just rub their hands together and go, who should we go for next? And you're just funding the problem. Uh, so I think there is a place. And in some countries, actually, ransomware, it's, it's unlawful to pay for ransomware. Um, so I think there's still a way to go for that moral you know that moral business um, equivalent to come forward as opposed to the economic one and and for ransomware many many ransomware payments are made by insurance companies now I don't want to start going down the line of money laundering and proceeds of crime and what that means in terms of that other sort of side but I think once you start negotiating with criminals because they've played with your data and you can no longer access it I think there's probably a question about how was it stored, what was your recovery preparations looking like, you know, yeah. I despite friend, the disruption. I had a friend a few years ago who got done by ransomware and he was asked to pay uh, uh, ransomware to get, to get his money back. He says, no, I'm not paying. Yeah. That's He says, I don't care. I've, I've lost what well, data I've got. I've lost it. That's fine. It's lost. I can live without it. I'm not going to ruin my world. Bye-bye. Yeah, and it's almost a bit like... Um, so, of course, once you've been a victim of ransomware, although they will say, we haven't lost any data, I'm not sure they know what they've lost. Yeah. But the fact is the data no longer has integrity because someone else has been in there already. Yeah. Um, but you look at the big law firm in America that's victim of ransomware, which is the law, law firms of the stars is how it's called. Yeah. These people whose data has been locked up and possibly been breached, you know, their data is going to be in someone else's pocket forever. Yeah. And so you can pay for the keys, yeah, you can recover your own data, but if you're a famous person who's got some very sensitive emails, uh, perhaps about other people with your law firm, and now the criminals are sitting on it, they're going to play you out for years on this. And yeah. so prepare prepare for your reputation management rather than getting your data back, probably. Yeah, it's like you um, said earlier about hostages. Hostages, if someone's a hostage, when they get them back, nothing's been compromised as such. Whereas with data, yeah. it's compromised. And once it's compromised, that's, you don't know who's got it or where it's going to go next. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely right. And so I'm not, you know, I'm not saying. So I think it's fair to say that it's not, you know, it's not. You cannot prevent ransomware all the time. You, you cannot have zero risk. But what you can do is prepare for it. Yeah. Prepare for that eventuality. 
and have some sensible steps. And I, and I don't think just getting the insurance company to throw up some cash is the best way of doing it. Um, because I think you know, you just, you're just fueling, you're fueling a criminal empire. That's what you're doing. Yeah, especially um, now when they're looking for you to pay in, in cryptocurrencies to hide their tracks. It. That's how it. Yeah. I mean, the olden, day, the olden days of say the olden days still happens, but the olden days of human hostages, the money was often traceable. Yeah. So you did have some sort of investigative lead to go after the money, perhaps follow the trail back to the criminals. But now you pay a bitcoin, it's gone, cashed out in the Philippines or something like that. Uh, anyway. I've got, I've gone enough about ransomware, but so I have a bit in my bonnet about it, as you can tell. So do I. I'm, I'm just thinking, basically, it's getting more prevalent, and it'll be here to stay. I can't see you going away anytime soon, but I've seen some criminals who are doing this. That once they've uh, got money out of you, they won't go near you again because the honor among things, they won't they move on. And some criminals, when they see somebody going to say person again and again, they get angry about that. Well, that's right. Just some stats. So the bit, one of the Sky News in January, the stats were... Uh, 365% increase in ransomware attacks on last year, um, which was phenomenal. Um, and I think the UK was the third largest attack service area after the US and Canada. Um, and that's because the more people that pay, the more people that are going to do it. And now you get ransomware as a service where you can rent the ransomware off gangs and criminal groups. You know, why big companies aren't spending just a bit of money on preparing themselves at the board level it is, I find it quite astonishing, really. And often the first time they have to deal with ransomware is when they have to deal with it in real life. Yeah. And everyone's, you know, boards are running around going, who's in charge and who's running this? And, and you, you think just for like two or three hours of board-level engagement and training and awareness on how to prepare effectively to deal with a ransomware attack probably will cost them a very small amount of money compared with the reputational, regulatory, and litigation cost that's going to come down the pipeline. Yeah. I wrote a great book on that years ago by Mr. Glenny about the dark net and how, yeah. and how basically people were in Russia and how this guy and his thing is FBI, CIA, FBI, I think, managed to get in and control on an online bulletin board on the dark web and can take it over. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it's interesting and frightening. But anyway, yeah. so yeah, ransomware, I think, is an issue through phishing is a sort of the vector. Um, and it goes back to the very beginning of this conversation about how do people protect themselves during COVID-19, but yeah. also how do they protect themselves generally, you know, more generally, both in Ireland and other parts, but particularly Ireland, you know, where more people work from home, perhaps infrastructure is not always as good as other places, it's a bit like the UK, it's good in London, yeah. poor in other places. And people just having that awareness, both at private and business level, on how to reduce that attack surface area, probably, if I'm honest, through some very simple basic training, you know, and learning and understanding and yeah. being engaged with that. Um, and then for bigger businesses, you know, how the board, and, and I truly believe that you won't get change in big businesses unless the board are signed up to this. There's no point going to the CIO because uh, he or she's got to push up and push down. Yeah. It needs to be in the CFO, COO, people who understand risk from a business perspective who can go, yeah, this is a business risk. How do we reduce our business risk? Yeah. Um, so they're the big things for me, but also it has to be underpinned by, you know, at nation state level, a coherent cybersecurity strategy that is more than just, you know, a strategy on paper. It's got to be executed and delivered and rolled out over time. And that's one of the challenges I think in Ireland now is how will that cybersecurity strategy that so much work was put into, and we actually put some advice into the government, Irish government, on it as well. How is that actually now going to be executed and delivered across, you know, at state level? And I'm thinking right now, because if people now are sitting realizing they've got to change 
for Copeland Dean when they should have done it ten years ago. Now it's been been done now. In the future, they'll they'll be ready for it again. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's just got you know. I think things have to be done, even if they're going to cost money on top of COVID nineteen. Some parts of that strategy have got to be executed upon to show some movement. Yeah, and my view is the money is worth it because in the long term, if, if you've shown to have done something that's possible like this, your clients will stick with you because you've been up and yeah. say, yeah, we're prepared for this. This is what we're doing because of COVID-19. Rather mm-hmm. than say, you walk into our shop or business, you have to wear a face mask. But if you say, uh, our, 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 our face mask for our data is a cybersecurity strategy, this is what we're doing to protect it as well. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I think we agree on those things. Uh, but as you know, it's a long journey of, of changing culture and changing mindsets. Um, but hopefully podcasts like this can help and help us nudge that dial a bit further forward. Yeah, I can. hope so. Well, I think it will because people will, let, will come back and understand and think they won't believe what we did years ago and what we're doing now. Like if you show your children or grandkids a movie, people bunch together in a restaurant or a nightclub, they're going, I can't believe you guys did that. <laughs> well, on a, on a different, less COVID-19 note, I remember talking to uh, one of the sort of founders of Uber, talking about Uber and how the model worked, and and he sort of looked me in the eye, and we'd, we'd, we might have had a drink or too many, but he looked me in the eye and said, you understand it's, this isn't about taxis? And I was going, what do you mean? Isn't it about taxis? He's going, this is about driverless cars. This is about autonomous vehicles. This is about understanding patterns of movement, how cities are designed, what the landscape and architecture looks like. And, and he, he sort of gave me this sort of 15-minute masterclass on something in 50 years' time. Yeah. And he said, and you will, you know, if you have great-grandchildren, you're still alive, or grandchildren, they won't know how to drive. Yeah. And they'll be amazed that you drove a car. And they'll say to you, what, grandfather, you actually drove? That's dangerous. You drove a car yourself? Yeah. How dangerous is that? And he says, that's what people will talk about in the future. And then you'll go to these, like, adventure parks where you can drive a real car on your own, which isn't controlled by a computer. Yeah. And there'll be loads of health and safety. You don't have to wear a helmet because they realize how dangerous it is driving yourself. Yeah. <laughs> and it's the same thing. Because I was at a conference last year on autonomous cars in, in Ireland, and Adam there was, a, was a guy from Uber, and he was saying they just spent a lot of money buying a, a lot of uh, new Volvo SUVs, and their aim yeah. is... They're going to be semi-autonomous. He says, one day they'll be fully autonomous. Yeah, well, they are now. And the XC90, so I did have an XC90 yeah. before. It was a bit, and I'm not an advertiser of Volvo because I found the seat really uncomfortable, which is unusual. But, yeah. but what I found, it was semi-autonomous. It, was, it had lane control. It had, you know, it kept its distance on the motorway. It would creep and follow the cars behind. So and what they're doing, the manufacturers, is they're getting the user like us at my age to feel comfortable with this. Yeah. And so at some point they can just say, you know what, just take your hands off the wheel now. Just let it go. And so they're, they're, they're rather than saying they are going to self-drive, and you go, oh, I can't do this. Yeah. They're giving you baby steps of comfort to trust. And it took me a long time to trust the car to brake yeah. on the motorway. And then once it starts doing it, you go, this is actually, this is a lot less stressful now. And actually it could brake quicker and think faster. And I go back to the beginning of this podcast, is that humans are unreliable. If, yeah. you, think about, if you think about us as creatures... We're emotional, we get stressed, we might drink too much, we might not drink enough, we might not eat enough, we're tired, we're emotional, we might have marital problems. And all at the same time, while we're managing all that, we're trying to make sort of coherent decisions that affect things. Now, I'm not saying computers are better because they're programmed by people, but I can understand why in some circumstances, semi-autonomous cars might be safer than us. You know, my parents right now are on their Ford Volvo and they have a V40 
Yeah. She's got all the kit that they can break and everything else. And I'm telling the parents what I can. I can't do and said, oh, and by the way, if you're beeping from the side mirrors, it's telling you that you're too close into that lane, just so you know why you're doing that. And my dad's going, I don't want some car telling me what, what, what to do. <laughs> That's culture, isn't it? We'd yeah. like to, we'd like to be in control of our own crashes, not someone else's. Yeah, I know. I, I think that's the truth about it. But I said to my parents, I said, well, look, put it this way. If anything happens, at least you're in a Volvo, you're going to be safe anyway. But yeah. all this other kid makes it where I was. But in 10, 15 years' time, you're going to be sitting there wondering, how did it die? You, you'd be going to work in the morning and you make up in the car reading the book because it's doing it all right. for you. That's what's happening in Los Angeles now, isn't it? Yeah. Tesla's now, uh, I, think, I think LA or, yeah, it's going to California, but Tesla's can be autonomous. Yeah. Um, the, the driver has to be in the seat and the driver has to be aware um, but generally, there people just sitting there reading books, eating yogurt, having their breakfast. Yeah, uh, which is quite. You know, and that's in the space of what, fifteen years, ten years. Yeah, I know. We've seen that change. And remember, a couple years ago, they actually got sued because uh, the technology on board couldn't distinguish between a, a, a white truck crossing the road yeah. and and that, and that, that caught on. Since then, technology has been changed to recognise this. It's very interesting that. So that is you made an interesting point about. You know, sort of racial stereotypes and bias in programming of computers towards yeah. certain things. And I think one of the one of the big things that needs to come off the back of all of this is that the ethical growth of computer software and that it is developed and coded without bias, yeah. subconscious bias. Because I think that is a concern. You know, yeah. Well, to me, many that, people. Yeah, it can be concerned because if you're basically right now in in a certain state in America, and that state is prone to a lot of uh, robberies. Yeah. You're already going to assume, or like in Ireland, you're going to assume some ethnic group is behind this. Yeah, so probably. Any, probably so- usually, yeah. Yeah. any software using to help you with this is going to erroneously be biased towards that. Yeah, there needs, to be, there needs to be proper, I think, sort of ethical committees that um, it really considers sort of the diverse nature of humanity to make sure there's no subconscious bias in coding. Yeah. Um, that's the next step of it. And, and, and you think about that's happening in medicine, that's happening in engineering. It is, it is a, a thing we have to do. Um, Okay, so that's a great conversation, Radan. Is there anything else you want to go through? Yeah, just briefly go, go through about your offices in Cork. Yeah, so when we so if we pull back sort of a year or two, as the company's been growing, we've also got a place in Singapore where we run a maritime cyber emergency response team. We look strategically as an organisation about we want to grow um, organically, like any company does, but we want to target markets where we feel. A, there is a market we can add value, and we want a European basis. Um, and although UK is in Europe, um, geographically, uh, in terms of sort of the EU as a entity, it's, it won't be. And we wanted to have a European base for Middle East and Africa, an EMEA base. And Ireland was, you know, the place we wanted to be for a whole host of reasons. One, you know, going back to my own personal roots, I'm honest. Um, so there was a bit of bias there. Um, for me, but also about a place in Ireland which is very keen to support, understand, be enabled uh, around cyber, cybersecurity technology. And, and Cork just seemed to jump out, if yeah. I'm honest, around that. I'm not saying that, you know, that's, that's not at any detriment to any other parts of Ireland, but we just seem to have an affinity. And because that's where my sort of long term roots came from many, many years ago. So there's that sort of Cork seemed to be the place. And then when we started to sort of have those discussions with Cyber Island and people like that, it just seemed to fit for us as a sort of European operating centre. Um, so it's still very much baby steps for us as we go into that marketplace, but we always felt that that was the right place to sort of put our 
put our little mark in and start to operate from, which we've, we've been trying to do over the last um, 12 months. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, because, you know, Cyber Island was launched there and we're part of Cyber Island and the work Cyber Island's been doing, it just seems to fit well, you know. And, hey, it could change, but for now, uh, it seems like a good fit for us and also a good fit for the other market. Well, in Ireland right now, you've got certain areas of, the, of Ireland are for certain tech hubs. Like, for example, MetTech is in Galway. And in yeah. Cork, Cork is, is, is known for cybersecurity. So yeah. that's why I can see why you went there. I mean, if you went somewhere like uh, Dublin, nice place, but it doesn't fit the hub because everyone else in the area is, is more or less based down there. It's like Palo Alto. Yeah. You know, no one's heard of Palo Alto or Cupertino, um, you know, in California, but that's where all the tech is and all the cyber is. Yeah. Um, so and I think also once more, once you have a sort of a central part of a country which focuses on something, it just seems to it just grows organically there because you've got like-minded people, similar sort of views and thought points. So it tends to get its own locus, doesn't it? Yeah, talking about Alto, they're also well, well known for IoT stuff. Yeah, and in Ireland, right, yeah. when we're doing our, our smart cities in Dublin, we always seem to link up well with that with Palo Alto because of what they've done and use them as a basis for doing that. Yeah, yeah, and so you have a natural synergy towards certain places, and, and Dublin has a great sort of reputation for other things as well, I think. So, yeah, and all for us, you know, I like Cork, and it's a great place to go to as well. On a personal note, it's a beautiful place to visit. Yeah, it is. I was there last year at a company that had just launched a, a new cybersecurity office. They moved to a new premises. Yeah, they said they weren't yeah. big enough, said, we're going to be on the, uh, this floor here, not the floor above, we're going to fill that with more staff. Yeah. And now looking back at COVID-19, thinking, how are they going to fill that now? Yeah, and that's really interesting. When we've always had, wherever we work globally, a very light footprint, um, an office footprint. And because we're a consultancy, we know we don't want to be stuck in an office all day. We either want to be client-facing or you know, yeah. de- de- delivering. Um, one of the challenges currently is that he's getting across there. And you know, we've talked about just getting in the car and getting the ferry. Um, so at least you can still you can still drive to Ireland if yeah. that makes sense. But fun, <laughs> the UK. fun thing is, when I was um, interviewing them last year, the fun thing was, with the person interviewed, the person I talked to, was a psychologist, and they hired her because she knows the human brain more than anybody else, and she's able to determine what these criminals will will do next. Yeah. She can spot patterns, and yeah. I thought before that I met nobody who was a psychologist working in this area. I've been doing it for like for five years because I can spot. Small things and no one else will notice. Yeah, so looking at interesting, I did some work when I was in law enforcement and we put all the, we put as much fraud data uh, as we could together and we ran it across, this is with the London School of Economics actually, we ran the anonymized data sets across a whole range of things that were not connected with law enforcement or crime. Mm, yeah. So we wanted to see if, for instance, you know, is there more fraud on a Friday? Does the weather change it? Does rain change it? Does world events change it? Does uh, intermittent dire events change it? And we found a whole new range of patterns, yeah. which we'd never considered before around what you know when fraud happens to a point where you can always predict when there'll be more fraud yeah. and the type. The risk and the challenge I found was having got that data and some pretty good evidence, no one wanted to believe it. Yeah. So they just carry on doing what they've always done, reacting. Yeah. Um, and that's the other problem with sort of people wanting to believe data that actually says, you know what, if you focus your efforts here, you'll have a better effect than if you do this. But this is when you get involved in human emotional thinking. Well, I, I've been here for 10 years, so I know better. Well, actually, you ain't know better based on your own examples, and they may be flawed. Yeah, um, I think that's where data is so valuable, yeah, which goes to, goes to if you look at COVID-19 now, and, you yeah. know, it, it was, and I think I did predict it based on, 
this is what criminals do, they seek advantage of other people's misfortunes. So, you know, a pandemic, a global crisis, a run on the markets, criminals just go after those vectors as an attack because humans, once again, the unreliable humans that we all are, are worried about two things. They've got fear and reward, and those little sensors in the back of the brain that get a dopamine hit every time they get rewarded. Phishing is an example of yeah. I'm either scared of something, so I'll click, or I'm going to get rewarded by something, so I'll click. You know, we're, just, we're Pavlov's dogs again, aren't we, really? Yeah. You know, depending on where the bell rings, we respond to it. Yeah. It goes back to my point that, you know, when the pandemic started to unroll, you know, industry experts, including myself and others, said, you know, you're going to see a, a big spike in fraud and cybercrime, so government, please get out there and start talking about it. And it took about five or six weeks, and to be fair, government had other things to worry about as well. But this is a crisis on a crisis. You know, you've been a victim of COVID-19 and now you're getting defrauded because you believe something to be true. So getting those messages lined up during a crisis as a communication piece is really important for both states and organisations because they're going to talk about one thing and at the same time another thing's going to hit. Yeah, I can imagine that last year you got all these criminals getting together on Zoom, on Zoom calls discussing pandemics. There's one coming up, coming up in a very, very... It's in, in China right now. It'll hit worldwide soon. Let's get yeah. there before we know what's happened. And then by the time you find you've been hit, you're coping with another crisis on top of that. Well, just like commodities trade, traders were buying up oil tankers for storage yeah, because they could see what was going to happen, I'm sure criminals would have been doing the same for the criminal marketplace. Yeah, and they're probably buying up a lot of day storage as well, things that they wouldn't notice. And like I always had this idea years ago, but if you want to be a criminal and do things properly, if you were to have a, have, a, have a submarine somewhere off Antarctica, which is basically no one's land, it can't be touched. And you, <laughs> you can have all your data. So you can have the mafia, whatever it is, have all the data stored in there. And because of where it is, it's hard to, hard to get at it. It's like the seed bank in Norway, isn't it? Yeah. So and it's, like you, away, not get there. it's like years ago, Pirate <laughs> Bay wanted to, have, uh, wanted to have servers in the air and balloons. And because <laughs> it's, up, it's up in the air, you couldn't touch it because it was no man's land in a sense. Well, there are the, uh, so, uh, so so I don't know we get at the end of this, but if you go on to flight radar and look over Kenya, Tanzania, they've got these huge balloons called loons. It's yeah. the L-O-O-N, the loon project, which I think is bringing, is it bringing Wi-Fi or is it low-level low satellites? It's I think to, it's Wi-Fi. I think it's Facebook was involved with that. Somebody else was to do They're amazing. So you go on flight radar, you see all these massive balloons yeah. floating over Africa. And they're just basically being used to bring information down to ground level without yeah. having to launch a satellite. Yeah. Um, they're called loons. I think there's all a bit of loon in all of us, I think. Yeah, I think, and on that note, we think that's what we should end, end on that. We're all loons to a certain extent. <laughs> Some more than others, not naming any names in particular, because in politics all over the world, we've got them in all our governments, everywhere. I never speak on politics. No, politics I... Or, or anything else. No, politics, religion, <laughs> sex, is no point talking about it, because you'll be here all day talking about it. it we would. We would. Yeah. Thanks for It's been great. I've enjoyed our conversation. Thank Thanks you for your Chris. time today as well. No problem, Matt. Have a great day and take care and good luck in the future. God bless you. Take care. Thank bye you. Bye-bye.